0: Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF podcast. Now one of the things we were going to do this month, until what with one thing and another we suddenly weren't going to be doing anymore, at least not until further notice, was to host the MTF Innovation Stage at Music Messe Frankfurt, which is Europe's biggest trade fair for music, with like tens of thousands of visitors coming from all over the world. Normally, wonderful opportunity to rub shoulders with brilliant musical minds, spring 2020, Not so much with the shoulder rubbing, please. But last year, we were there running MTF Labs and the MTF Pro Labs, an innovation masterclass for industry execs drawing on the expertise, experience and creative tech skills of the MTF community. Beatboxer and, more recently, neuroscience and AI researcher Reeps one joined MTF's Michaela Magus to lead the MTF Pro Labs. And there were some pretty brilliant people in the room, from innovation managers for national airlines to large festival organisers and Hollywood cinematographers. And one of those people was a man called Doug DeAngelis, who's the co-founder and conference chair of A3E, an industry body dedicated to the future of advanced audio applications, music and entertainment technologies, and new content creation tools, and an educational partner to NAM. So Doug's had a career in the music industries that most people could probably only dream of. His big start in the whole thing was fairly auspicious, uh, recording the first Nine Inch Nails album with Flood in the midi suite at Berklee College of Music, and he's gone on from there to spend a couple of decades working with the likes of New Order, Michael Jackson, Queen Latifah, Shaka Khan, Love and Rockets, Alicia Keys, No Doubt, as well as writing and producing music for TV shows like Bones, Alias, Cold Case, CSI, ER, and One of my favourites, Lie to Me, starring Tim Roth, for which Doug won a BMI Music Award. Now, music messer, when it moves, moves pretty fast. And Doug had things to do and places to be, but I took the opportunity to sit down with him after the Innovation Masterclass and have a bit of a chat. So from Frankfurt last year, and looking forward to getting back there when that's a sensible thing to do, here's my conversation with Doug DeAngelis. Enjoy. (laughs) Doug, thanks so much for joining us on the MTF Podcast.
1: Ah, My pleasure.
0: Um, you are here, I guess, as a
1: representative or, or chair of A3E? Yes. I'm uh, one of the two co-founders of it, and I'm the conference chair. What are the three A's? The Advanced Audio and Applications Exchange. And so it is? It, so A3E was born out of uh, the idea, after I was... Living in Los Angeles, I started doing a lot of television score Mm -hmm. and I started working on my own a lot instead of, you know, more traditionally working in the studio with a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it came time to do another conference, I had done one earlier and, you know, kind of figure out what it should be about. I felt like it should be about developers I felt like I had watched over the years of the the music industry evolving so many of the great session players I knew from New York and Los Angeles going and and becoming, you know, creating sample libraries and building all these amazing, you know, being part of building these incredible tools that we as composers were using making music now was all packaged into plugins for Uh us. And I just thought, wow, I mean, developers are your co-writers now. I mean, they're just in the studio with you all day making music and, and you're, You know, you're lying if you don't say that you pick certain plugins and certain things for certain creative applications because you know right away it's going to get you a third of the way through the job. Sure. You know, so you absolutely go to things by what they do musically, you know. And so I just felt like, wow, it was really important to bring you know, technology-focused musicians together with developers, the people who were really behind us and supporting us and creating the tools that we were really using now all the way around. Mm -hmm. So that was the birth of A3. So the applications part of it was, what are the applications they're developing? What applications are there for the things they're developing? Um, So that started in in 2013 in Boston, actually. Okay. Well,
0: you've just walked out of the MTF Pro Labs, Mm -hmm. uh, the Innovation Masterclass. What happened?
1: Oh, wow. So what happened that, you know, it's a lot happens when you're in a, in a situation like that. First, your frustration level, just you walk into any situation. And I think when you when you're somebody who's has so much kind of on your mind all the time about all this, you're always in this sort of state of even if you don't realize it, but you're in this sort of state of tension uh-huh. because you just. You just want. Right. You want. There's a gap
0: between where things are and where they're supposed to be. Yeah, and you just yeah.
1: want. Yeah, it's like you want everything, but you don't you don't even need to define it. You just sure. want. Yeah. And you know, you get in there and at first you just want like I want to get started. I want to know what these guys do. Well, I want this. I mean, and then all of a sudden, you know, somebody starts to talk. In this case, Reaps, and you just realize, okay, you don't need to think like that anymore because everybody in here gets this. Right. So we don't need to be in a rush to get anywhere right now. We all get it and we're going in the a direct, okay, good. I don't need to feel this way anymore. Sure. And that's a really amazing feeling in a room like that. So we all see it totally different. I mean, no question when I listen to each person in that room talk, we all we all grab onto different things. We're all moved by different things. There's things that some people are totally moved by in this world that I'm not at all, that mm-hmm. don't even touch me. Yeah. And the things that other people are that just blow my mind and maybe the person sitting next to me doesn't quite feel it the way I do. It's, it's how it works. Sure. But you all realize that you all have that childlike desire to want to feel that, and, and the thoughts about how to keep going and going and going. So right. it's it's tricky because when you're outside of that environment and you try to do that, you're often surrounded by people who don't want to keep up with that. They because they just it's exhaustive, mm-hmm. you know. They don't have that same desire to want like that, so they kind of just keep going. Can we finish? You know, it's yeah. like, no, not till it's done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so to be clear to people who, who weren't in the room, you know, what happened and, and what did you think? You know what, that, that bit's kind of interesting.
1: Well, I thought, uh, you know, Reeps One was giving a talk that was really brilliant on y- breaking down your own mental barriers in order to get from where you are to the next place, sure. right? And he was using technology to kind of, show how that can be done in the different mindsets of that. He was taking you through the mental paces of that, which I always say to people, you know, when they ask what A3 is, it's, it's a psychology show to me. It's uh-huh. what it always has been. It's not a music technology show. It's a music psychology show. And it's about the mental paces of what takes a person from point A to point Z. Right. Mm-hmm. And every, it's always different for everybody. But I never want to talk about the equipment. I want to talk about the, what, the, the, the mental process behind doing it. And I think with him, what was so interesting about it is he's doing it with his voice, Yeah. so you don't have a piece of gear getting in the way.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. But it's about mindset.
1: So there's, a ver- there's a, he's a great spokesperson for it, not only because he's so articulate and brilliant with it, which he is, but there's also a purism to it with him because there is no piece of gear. Mm-hmm. There is no turntable. There is no set of pads. There's nothing in there that you're kind of going, ooh, that's his little magic wand. You yeah, know, yeah, it's yeah. like, mm, it's just there. And yet there's
0: innovation going on.
1: And music. Yeah. Incredible music. I mean, it's amazing to hear what he's able to do. Yeah, you know? for sure. For so, sure. Yeah.
0: Well, speaking of music, let's start at the beginning. You're 18 years old. You're at Berkeley College of Music. Yeah. What's, what's the game plan?
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, well, it wasn't Berkeley. <laughs> I mean, I loved Berkeley. Yeah. I, I w- wanted to go there so bad, but the truth was, I grew up in music like pop music. Uh-huh. And I grew up loving synthesizers. I mean, I started riding my bike to the music store when I was eight years old to play with synthesizers every single day. Were
0: you one of these posters of synths on the wall? You oh, know, DX7 yeah. posters? Oh, my and, God, yeah.
1: yes. <laughs> I mean, even well, mini mogs. I, right, I well. still have my first, uh, the, the, the guy who taught me who worked at that music store when i ride my bike every day, later on gave me the Korg Monopoly. That was the first one that I learned on. I still have it in my studio now. Um, So this is like, you know, late 70s. And then I got into the early 80s and I just fell in love with new wave music and electronic music. I mean, so just talking about Annie Lennox in the room in there and I'm just going, oh, you know, these are my people in here now. So Berkeley. It was a strange environment for me. And I didn't know that till I got there. The, uh-huh. That's the truth. I yeah. mean, that the truth was I was sitting in rooms with people who were, you know, Witten Marsalis' kids. Right. And I was, yeah. you know, Simon LeBond's bastard child, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or, or Nick Rhodes, really. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so that you know and, and but that was about being a virtuoso more than it was about
1: uh, expression through Yes yeah. and and so what moved me musically was layers and textures and the the intricacy of that early synth work and how it all interact together and uh-huh. all that that fascinated me not bebop scales and those things not, and and you know that's so fascinated me more and more as I got older we're at 17 years old at this point you mm-hmm. know Yeah So for me Berkeley was a it was great, but I very quickly found myself going to a studio and getting an internship. And uh, I was a good programmer, so I immediately started running their, what they called the midi room. We had okay. a midi room, yep. you know, yeah. the weird room. Down, down. It was downstairs. Yeah, and it was
0: smaller than all of the other rooms. Little we tiny, working. it was yeah, the yeah. midi room.
1: Yeah. Like, it like, was like mini almost, you yeah. know, it was like midi and mini were confused at the time, you uh-huh. know. So I ran the midi room. Um, and that studio was owned by the band The Cars. The, uh, they had just sold it to two gentlemen who were, one was a record producer who I had been working with. The other one was also a record producer who now is still, I think, one of the heads of the mp department at Berkeley, Okay, the Mendelssohn brothers. So I worked for them and that was kind of where I got my start and they taught me a ton and I, I had a great programming background already so I was the guy that could work the E3 and work all those things and yeah. play with digital audio and samples and all that stuff. So.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me that you mentioned textures as part of music making because uh, it's something that I, you know, as a teenager was, was always fascinated by. And when Head Like a Hole came out, I could point to it, uh, you know, the Nine Inch Nails record and, and say, this is what I mean when I talk about textures. And you recorded that. Mm-hmm. Now tell me how that came about.
1: Uh, that came about from the midi room. Oh, wow. <laughs> the, the midi room. Yeah, no, it was a great room. I, you know, I, I was working with all different artists in Boston that were kind of experimenting in electronic stuff um, and, and rock, you know, mm-hmm. regular stuff too. Yeah. And uh, I got a call one day from his manager saying, can we book time with you in the midi room? Yeah. And he was, obviously, that was the first record, so he was no different than anybody else on sure, the planet at that sure. point. He was no different than any... He just some guy named Trent. Just some yeah. random thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So we got in to do the random thing, and what came in with the random thing, though, was Flood.
0: Right, okay. Yeah. That's that not guy. quite so
1: random. No. And I didn't even know he was going to be there. I didn't know much about the project at all, to be honest. I got there to do the job, and mm-hmm. and in walked Trent and Flood. And Flood was just a I mean, it's just a beast. We did five straight days with no breaks at all. I mean, I imagine they being mixed
0: ne- quite loud too.
1: Never left. We never <laughs> left. It was just in the room. I mean, it was it was ass kicking to be totally honest. It was a really ass kicking thing. But it was, uh, you know, it was interesting. When you talk about innovation, sometimes you don't realize because you're too new to know what innovation even is, right? Uh-huh. So yeah. I think I was just really lucky because. I walked into some of my earliest recording projects. That being one of my one of my earliest ones, yeah. and you know, we in came a Mac Plus with Digital Performer, which was Performer at the time, right? It was just it was pretty much just a triangle and an, you know and a pause button, right? <laughs> But Trent was doing, he was looped. I mean, if you listen in like Terrible Lie, there was these weird little voices and things that were being looped. And it was the first time I'd ever seen anything be looped, you oh, know. Right. And yeah. and uh, and the program was quite sophisticated. And obviously, Flood is a brilliant programmer, too. So, you know, you were in there with people that were, Trent at the time was actually working at a studio in Cleveland. Okay. Um, he was an, also an engineer he worked at a uh, he was like a project studio guy at a Cleveland studio mm-hmm. um, so we all were everybody kind of was and they were just such innovative minds and you didn't really realize how what that that's not how normal stuff happens right right you're not in you weren't in there making you know a, a, a sort of a, a Album-oriented rock, maybe or pop jazz album, and it's we've done it the same way fifty-five thousand times. It was like this was being done really differently, and you don't even know because it's new. Yeah, because um, there wow. wasn't. I mean,
0: out, particularly outside of sort of the uh, sort of German industrial scene, there wasn't a lot of things that that had kind of touch no. points with. No, so it's it, it you it must have felt like kind of inventing something on the spot.
1: You were not knowing you were not knowing you were, uh-huh. and but we. You, like, I remember recording the guitars on it. We used a, a Yamaha REX50. Do you remember that box? Oh, it was sort of like an XBX90, but it was flat. It was a tabletop version of it. Oh, right. Wow. And it, it was like a very, it was like an SBX90 light. Right? <laughs> and it was a tabletop version. It had just, it had a patch that was distortion. Yeah. That was all those guitars on had like, oh, that's just straight through that box. No, there's no amps. It was just a tweaked out version of that processor making those just ripping tones you know and so much of it was just the way it was processed the way it was done i remember my favorite part of that whole session if you know that record in the song terrible lie there's a moment where everything mutes for a second then comes back on it literally it pauses Mm -hmm. that was a mistake of trying to hit the mute button hitting the solo button by accident and it wrote in the automation. Right. And that weird move stayed all the way through the final version of that. And it's still in there. And that always blows my mind. Because, you know, that's one of those moments where it's like so much of innovation comes out of accident, you know. And, and it's
0: my favorite song on the record. So it's yeah, so yeah, much <laughs> weird stuff
1: comes out of accidents, you yeah, know. That's, that's amazing. So... Wow. But, and,
0: that, and, but but you kind of tell the story as if you sort of stumbled into this, uh, this you know, Trent Reznor and Flood kind of uh, experience. But, it, you know, had that been the case, it would have been a, a one-off. But then you've got Queen Latifah and Michael Jackson and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, give me the list.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of them. So, it, you know, that turned into New York. So I did... You know, it was a lot, was a lot of them. Um,
0: New Order, them Khan. New Order,
1: yeah. A lot of Shaka Khan stuff. Uh, did Madonna stuff. Uh, Pet Shop Boys. I mean, just some early hip-hop like the Jungle Brothers and wow. stuff like that. Which Jungle Brothers? I can't tell you right now. <laughs> so but all a- the way back at the beginning, I mean... And No
0: Doubt. No Doubt, du- yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's a bit of a career there. There's a, yeah. there's, a, there's a trajectory. But you
1: know what, that all had a reason to. Yeah. That wasn't really related so much to the Nine Inch Nails thing. That was really related to the fact that right after Nine Inch Nails, I got asked to do to go on this tour for this artist called Inner City. Right, and inner city was not so popular in America, but over here, like in Britain and here in New Zealand,
0: it was all in the clubs. It was it was huge. 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 So
1: it was supposed to be this little short tour, and and it was at the time like you know when they said, we're going to do house music. And you were like, whose house? You know, what like, does that even mean? What's house music, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah constantly in somebody's living room. Yeah, because yeah. we didn't know
1: about it in America. You know, right. it was big over here with S-Express and bands like that. But You know we, where it was
0: invented, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh, yeah of, course. of course.
1: Of <laughs> course. Somebody knew about it yeah, in so, oh, Yes, yeah. but not in Boston. Right, okay. In Boston, we did not know about it. For I mean, sure. it was just bubbling a little bit, you know? So... I went on this tour and the idea was to take that record and play it live right. with all people. So to me, the way to do that was to play it all with sticks and pads because it was so rhythmic and there was such a yeah. sound to it. So we built this whole band around all these pads and sticks and the bass player played pads and the drummer played pads and we had, it was great. And so we went on the road and it was supposed to be a couple weeks long and it wound up being like 10 months we were on the road wow. with that. It was a long, long time because they kept having another single and another single and another single and it just kept going And from that, then I started working in New York with um, Kevin Saunderson and the whole Detroit techno gang. We lived in a loft with them. And then when I moved to New York, it was really that background. It was really being one of the very few people in America that was really exposed to that music at that level that led to all the remixes and all that stuff. Honestly, that's more where it came from than anything else because... Underground music was starting to bubble in New York. Mm. Guys like Danny Snagley and Roger Sanchez and those, you know, Deep Dish and all those artists. were. That was a bubbling thing. Chicago House was already going. Uh I mean, Inner City was really Chicago House. It was the girl was from Chicago. Um, So it was kind of bubbling, and and that led to working with, like, Arthur Baker and those different DJs and then Lil' Lewis and the Chicago guys, and it, it all... It was... You know, there was just only a dozen of, them, of us that was small. It was a little community, you know, so yeah. you just, I worked on those records. Kind of responsible day. for a lot of stuff happening, though, of that small group of people. Yeah, it was a small group, though. Yeah. It really was. I mean, now it's a massive group, but back then it was quite a small group. And there, yeah. was, and so, and there was more of the DJs than there were the support system of the DJs. So there was less of us uh-huh. than there were them. There wasn't right. many of us. We got shared between them. So the guy who could program the synths and and you know get all the production work done with them, they could have an idea, and you could facilitate the idea and get it down on tape for them as a DJ. Mm-hmm. Those guys were not were pretty few and far between. So we shared. It would sort of be six DJs to one. That's how it kind of worked, and there was me, and there was a guy named Dave Darlington, and there was a bunch of different guys, and we we all had different ones. We all you didn't mess with each other's ones, so so that's really how it worked, and it was it was an interesting thing, you know.
0: Can I ask just to sort of backpedal even further? What did your parents do, and how did that
1: affect where you ended up? Nothing. My my parents were both teachers. Uh huh. They were um, no musical background at all.
0: So no no not a musical family. No. Uh, but uh, no. yeah, so where does it all come from? Is it just you know, come on uh, a bike, goes down to the music store? Is that yeah, the whole story? I was in
1: love with it from the time I was little, and then I just started playing in bands when I was 12 and 13. And uh-huh. it was really not a great thing, actually, between me and my parents at all. I, I didn't, my, my parents were so academic, they didn't want me to have anything to do with that, so they just totally rejected it. It was the people that, like the guy I told you, gave me that early synth that got that helped me get to Berkeley and mm-hmm. kind of get my foot in the door with all that and uh so, so you kind of had
0: a mentor yeah that was outside of that yeah which is which is kind of interesting but basically you're still rebelling
1: yeah well i think we're all just like kids I, I i'm waiting to get older yeah i'm still waiting to grow up i've been waiting to grow up since then you know yeah,
0: yeah. it's a little bit overrated but uh, but yeah it's a, it's an interesting journey um yeah. when did the tv music thing kick in
1: so, uh, late 90s, I had been in New York a long time at that point, probably 10 years or so almost. It was or almost 2000. I went to LA because I had been producing, I had probably been producing then for about four years solid. Um, I moved to LA um, in the late, very late 90s. I had produced an album for Eleven Rockets and I was still very close with those guys. I wound up doing a tour with Peter Murphy, who I met through them, mm-hmm. wow. um, and Kevin Haskins from Love and Rockets, and I started a company together. And we started kind of, we had, a, we just kind of connected really hard making that album. Yeah, and so we just kind of carried on with that, and and through that, I started doing a lot of music for TV. I mean, honestly, that that was how I started doing television. A music supervisor back then called me and said, "I'm trying to license this song from this Love and Rockets record. You're one of the writers. Can you help me?" Right. clear it and I th- the record company had gone out of business it was a weird year, situation sorry what year was this 99 right. or so I came with you yeah and I said no but I don't know how to I have no idea but I can make another one for you if you want okay. and she said you can and I said of course you know it's yeah. like what, 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 I haven't
0: run out of songs yeah.
1: <laughs> you know it was like wasn't that hard yeah. the first time okay <laughs> so I just did it again. You know, I just made another, it was for a chase scene or something like that in a mm-hmm. television show. So I just did it that night and sent her to her the next day. And honestly, that's what started it. Cause then she kept coming back and then her friends started to come to me. Can you do something like this? Can you do something like that? Can you blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And so my really entrance into television music was doing, you know, records that they couldn't do. And then, uh, Kevin and I, we we wound up scoring a television show we submitted music or something i don't remember how it happened but uh it was michael mann director michael Mann, yeah and we wound up working for him he was the first tv show and it was a really again you don't know when you're dealing with an innovator because you're just starting so you're clueless and Uh you have no idea what you're dealing with but he was very innovative you know he always always has been obviously but um it was an int- you know, it was a really interesting entrance into all of it. He, he was intense, and uh, he would talk into a dictaphone like this. Right. Da, 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 da. he never talk. You would, you'd all go for the meeting. Yeah. He wouldn't look at any of you. He'd just sit, watch the screen, talk into the thing, and you'd get it in the mail at night. It would get delivered to your door, all the notes. And so you were up all night, 24-7, revising and making notes and doing things. And wow. So that was kind of my entrance into film and television music, and then I, I did that for about 15 years. Is the appeal of that, that
0: instead of selling things to lots of people for small amounts of money, you're selling to
1: one person for a large sum? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. I mean, the music industry, obviously, around that very same time, 1999, obviously took a massive hit, um, but television and film didn't. What was, what was interesting about it was 15 years later, moving from Los Angeles to Nashville... right. And now, all of a sudden, you're in the city where music's pure. You don't, you're don't. you not a musician for the f- television industry. You're a musician for the music industry. And those are very... this purity in that? <laughs> I guess, in my mind, there is. <laughs> I guess like, it depends I, on how contaminated say, you
0: are. <laughs> I have to say, the first person to, to put purity in music industry in the same sentence <laughs> that I've <ever. laughs>
1: Yeah, well... It, but it, I do get what
0: you mean, absolutely. So. Yeah,
1: and so it was hard, though, to see, you know... By the time I moved to Nashville, they had really been hit by the whole thing, because the, the country music lasted a lot longer than the rest of it, but but Nashville's not country music anymore. No, for and sure. And once it changed, yeah. they got hit by it, just like everybody else. I mean, country's know? still there. Absolutely. But it's not just country. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, not even... it's con- it, it, It's a very balanced subset to the whole music community there now
0: mm. in fact there's there's been a big uh, discussion recently about uh, some of the country music that is like is this country or is it trap you know it's yeah. like where are the boundaries anymore
1: right yeah is so. it yeah I mean you know when you've got Kelsey Ballerini working with Chainsmokers and Marin Morris and Zed and all those kind of as soon as one does it yeah. and it does what the middle did everybody's gonna do it I mean it works yeah. C- country music started turning to pop music years ago it worked great and it's gonna keep going farther and farther in that direction there's no doubt about it
0: right which, which is kind of interesting because there are always people who are trying to preserve a tradition and I get that mm-hmm. um, but I, I'm, I'm always excited by when people kind of take the barriers away mm. uh, and go what else can we mix with this How, what other sorts of hybrids can we create and I think that's where a lot of the kind of particularly musical innovation starts to kick yeah. in um, I, I'm kind of really interested in um, one show in particular, which uh, is kind of a seminal, I guess, from a from a music perspective. Was "Lie to Me." Yeah. Um, so tell me about your approach to that show.
1: Um, my approach to that show, when I think about my approach to that show, it it it's from the pilot perspective, mm-hmm. because that that was one of the shows that I started from pilot. And when you start a pilot is a just such a messy process you know there's nothing there's no filthier word to composers than pilot it just makes us quiver uh-huh. um, because you know we were t- it's interesting we were talking about this at NAM with a, with a whole group of, t- of composers and, and the audience was really fascinated by it but when you do pilots you you it's not when you do your first one it's when you do about your 15th one that you realize oh, what a pilot is a pilot is is a is a script that's been written over the course of like years and then shot over the course of a long time and then edited 8 million times before it ever gets to you. Mm-hmm. And so you're getting it fresh and you just have all these creative ideas and everybody else is so already done, overdone, redone 15 times and their their perspective is like, you know. Yeah. And there's also a lot of problems with it that they've heard along the way when they're writing. This line of that actor's not very good. So they They're always, well, we'll fix it with music.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That was one I actually did with a couple of great producers uh, named Sam Baum and Dustin. (sighs) The name escapes me right now. They were a production team I'd worked with before on a show called The Evidence. And uh I remember when they sent me the pilot, and it was just... So to me, the whole musical tone of that show, I think of as the pilot. I think of as that opening scene to the opening pilot when... This they is, were,
0: this is the, the airport scene? Yes. All right, yeah. okay. So and then
1: going into that sort of first like interrogation room, and just that whole thing was just, how do you kind of bring that whole thing to life? And I, I remember working... I remember so clearly like working on that so much, and, right. and just trying to find a really dark, kind of gritty percussive kind of thing for it and make so it, it was, come to life. So was the
0: pilot the first episode? Because yes. that's not always the case. Yes, it was the first episode. Right, yeah. okay. Because yeah. that, that scene where basically, I, mean, I don't know if, if uh, people listening have, have, have watched it, but I recommend it, uh, but basically somebody who can tell when somebody is lying. Yes. Uh, is about to um, pretend essentially to be somebody who is lying so that he can get caught, and, right. and you know, without without spoiling too much of the story. But it's right. that's a, that's a really uh, interesting setup, and it's in this kind of airport security yes. context. And there's a, there's a tension in that, but there's a comedy in it as yes. well, which yep. is which is really nice.
1: Which there was a lot through that show, and that's one of the hardest things to work musically is tension and comedy at the same time. It's a right. very tricky thing. It's when you learn. So how do you space really well? <laughs> you know, you're supposed to learn it just making music. Yeah. You know, really learn it when you're doing comedy and stress at the same time, because it's very hard lines to walk. And it's particularly with an actor like that, when you've got a guy that's very dry like that, so mm-hmm. he can go from serious to comedy without any, without it, there being a beat at all to even play with, you know, just in a look. Yeah. And so you're really always walking this really tough line, but um, yeah, I really enjoyed that show. I always really enjoyed working with those two producers. And I think Sam now does uh, like Chicago Fire and those things. He's gone on and done a lot of things. He's a very, very talented guy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, games on the, on the agenda? Is that next?
1: I did a little bit of games back in the day. Yeah. Um, you know, the, t- uh, the tech, I-, I had to kind of make a choice between games and TV, to okay. be honest, because when I started doing games, um, the, the the engine was changing so much, and you would have to keep up with it. It was like all of a sudden there was scripting, and you had to go to, you know, up to Microsoft, and they'd give you this gigantic book to learn all this stuff, and you had to deliver right. in all these new formats. And so, if you weren't really dedicated to that, there was no way to keep up with that. You it was not dabble, yeah, no, you couldn't dabble back and forth between right. TV and those. They, they were moving way. I mean, this is a huge issue for me. And we can talk about this forever, but it's funny because I never thought about it in this perspective like this. But what I felt at the time was there's no way to keep up with this because these people move really fast. They keep changing their engine Uh and and their engine is how music is made. Mm. I mean, physically, how we make the music is tied to this freaking engine Mm. that they keep changing. Yeah. Well, that engine is why they make a shitload of money. That engine changing is why they're able to keep young audiences engaged for, you know, and growing from Pong to, you know, Fortnite. Yeah. That's why, you but know, and that was the early look at it, but that's why. Sure. What did we do?
0: But they're basically reinventing the musical instruments. they reinventing; along the
1: way. they reinvent everything along yeah. the way. If you told game developers they had to work on a platform for you know they had to release their game in the same platform that it was released 15 years ago, they would die. I mean, yeah. they were just like, joking me. So they're they're always reinventing the technology to support the experience. They're reinventing the delivery system to up the game for the experience to up the experience, which is why kids are so dialed into experience constantly growing and they and that's why they thirst for it.
0: Mm -hmm. So what's the next
1: challenge? For me from here forward honestly the challenge is figuring out how to do that for music. That is the absolute challenge from here on. I'm good with everything else. I love making music. I'll make it forever but for me from here forward it's how do we do what the game industry did from, a, from an innovation standpoint to make music an experience that's worth paying for for kids, not live music. I don't want anybody to be confused that I'm talking about live music. because I know people pay for live music, Uh but let's look at that as well. Think about concerts from back in the day to Coachella and South by Southwest and those things. The evolution of concerts has gone from two bands playing in an arena to 60 bands in a field with a tech festival and a book festival and this and everything going on around it. It's a full on experience and they'll pay money for that because Uh that's that suits the 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 experience drive. Right. So, how, but how do you
0: get out of... Uh, all right, we need to make it kind of really appealing and, and um, you know, potentially lucrative for a young audience without them going to a live gig, without making it gimmicky.
1: So I, I think that you you got to really break the mold. Like, the way we're working on it is to say... It's not about the music. I have no problem with... The, the evolution of music's fine. Mm-hmm. It's the delivery system that's not able to keep up with the kind of delivery systems that keep young audiences engaged. So to me, the starting point was to reinvent the delivery system. And so since we all have a a powerful computer in our pocket, why not use that and reinvent the delivery system? So what we did was we, we actually from the ground up designed an engine that can play back an album, a a single in a multi-track format. Uh Uh-huh. As well as two remixes of the single in a multi-track format, but then be able to combine all the parts from all three of those versions and let you automate it, let you manipulate it, let you add your own parts to it, let you marry it to video, let you marry it to pictures, let you post it straight to social media, let you run contests with it, let you... Seek out things online and put together video clips that make a trailer and then marry it together with your own remix of the song from that movie and then win tickets to the movie. All sorts of experiences with music that help it. Look, kids perceive music right now as part of content. Right. Right? Kids are content creators now. I don't, I don't see young people striving to make music. They want to make content, and music's a component of content. Yeah. So let's give them the ability to do that with music. Let's, let's, let's get them paying artists and buying music in a way that they're comfortable doing it. You know, they're never, they're never going to go back to buying music. We've told them it's free. Mm-hmm. So, but they'll pay for everything. So when, the way we do it, we do it all with virtual currency. So you earn your way through to being able to unlock all different experiences that help you build all cooler content and that help you then enter all these challenges and do all these things. And really, as you're earning that or buying it, you're actually paying for what would be like double what it would be for downloads. So you're actually paying the artist. But it's participatory. It's participatory. Yeah. It's all about putting you into it you kids have to be part of things they have to be it's it's about being able to personalize it share it and you know really yeah customize it and you know it's fascinating when you show somebody and you say hey you just created your own version of that song you love do you want to buy it for 99 cents there's no other way to keep it (laughs) you go yeah yeah Right? Yeah. They're ne- why would you ever buy it for ninety nine cents when you can stream? It'll be there again tomorrow to stream. Yeah, but not your version that you're proud of. That you're proud of. Yeah, and it's a way. So the way we did it was also a way that artists could function with because it's all material that's uh, you know curated from the artist. So it's it all works. It all sounds great, and mm-hmm. they don't have to worry about. It. So it's very pure too in in an artist sense. So what I'm really excited about is to go back now and start working with artists. In that format on as a single not as a single in remixes but to be able to say to an artist you have all different ways you perform this song right you could do it acoustically you could do it electrically you could do it this well let's do them all yeah and make it all work and you'll have all three versions and they'll all interact and everybody can sit and make all their own anything they want so it gives you kind of all the fun of everything and it's also a cool learning tool you can plug in a guitar and play to it and you can chords are there and the lyrics are there and you can You know, you can learn about effects and all that stuff too, so. And it's called? Stylus.
0: Fantastic. Doug, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Cheers. That's producer, composer, engineer, musical director, music supervisor, conference chair, and inventor, Doug DeAngelis and that's the MTF Podcast if you want to follow me on Twitter you can find me at Dubber and MTF is at Music Tech Fest all one word in fact pretty much everywhere it's just Music Tech Fest the MTF Podcast is out every Friday so if you haven't already you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts Overcast Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast app might be wherever actually you're listening to this and if you like what you hear you can share rate and review us it really helps other people who might be into this sort of thing to find us Go and wash your hands, be safe, be healthy, have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers.